Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Like with diapers. Could I get a witness? Anybody ever change a diaper in this house? What about the first one, though? Remember the first diaper you ever had to change? You blocked it out, right? You're like, I don't want to remember. It was probably the first night you brought them home. They make you do it in the hospital, but you got nurses helping you. That's not real. When you come home, you're by yourself. Your mom's not coming to save you, and you have to change that first diaper. It's, it's a disaster, but you just got to do what you got to do. No one else is going to do it for you. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, just like with your lawn. Anyone else discovered recently that their lawn will not cut itself? Do you have a lawn like me right now? It's kind of in that last sort of hairy end of summer, start of fall phase where you haven't given it the last cut you need to give it, and so it's looking kind of bedraggled and forlorn. And every week you get up and you're like, maybe it will have cut itself. And you're like, maybe not. I used to uh, cut my lawn religiously before I moved to Guelph and became a hippie. I used to, uh, <laughs> you're like, you're the least hippie guy in Guelph. I know. Guilty as charged. But I did, true story, used to water my lawn. And then we watched a documentary on water conservation. And no joke on the impact that North American lawn habits have on the worldwide water supply. And I was like, that's it. I quit. So I literally just stopped watering my lawn. And so my lawn's not beautiful anymore. So every time I cut it, it's kind of just like a labor of love. But sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. It's kind of like being nice to your spouse. right? Do you know this? That you're the only person who can be nice to your spouse? Like it's the your job is to be nice to your spouse. We sometimes forget that it's our job. And um, in all seriousness, sometimes um, it's easy to treat your spouse um, as an afterthought. Right? You have a busy life. You have a busy week. Maybe you had a bad day. Maybe you come home stacking. Right? You have one problem that you've laid on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. And then your wife or your husband, your partner is just an easy target. And I just want to remind you, as a Bible-preaching pastor who loves you, that uh, your job is to be nice to your spouse, and sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, because no one else is going to do it. If you don't, imagine how horrible that would be to be living with a spouse who is never nice to you. Maybe some of you have experienced this, and it's no joke. Um, if you've stopped being nice to your spouse, please repent and uh, do what you got to do. It's the same thing with being patient with your kids. Like, my kids are terrorists. My little daughter's always here. You're the best of the four. <laughs> But her older brother, Sam, our middle boy, he's a criminal. He treats the island in the kitchen like it's his dresser. It's crazy. Like, we come down, and there's just, you know, there's clothes tucked on the one stool, and there's some sitting on top. And because we're hippies now, we don't wear anything in the hot tub, so even there's underwear on the islands. You're like, Sam! And you just got to deal with it. You just got to do what you got to do. You got to fold this clothes. And Did you ever um, hesitate before going into a job interview? Remember your first, like, real job and how horrifying it was? You've forgotten now that you used to be afraid. Remember that first moment you're like, I can't do it. <laughs> do you feel like you can't do it? I had to go to a meeting at NBC one time. Like, at the Rockefeller Center in New York, I had a meeting, a pitch meeting at NBC. And I was, I was all dressed up. I was wearing a suit. You're like, you wear suits? Yes, only to NBC. So I'm wearing a suit, and I'm just, I'm, I'm so nervous, like, more nervous than I was on my first date with Nikki. Like, no joke. I was like, I can't. With you, I was excited. I'm like, let me at her. I can't wait to see this woman. But with NBC, I was like, I can't do it. I, can't. I literally had to, have you ever had to do this? You have to force yourself to walk across the threshold. Any, give, give me a witness. You ever had a meeting like that? Yeah, it's horrifying. But you got to do what you got to do because no one else is going to force. It's like eating muscles, right? Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Unfortunately, I'm married into an Italian family, and Italians are all crazy. Why? Because I never met an Italian who doesn't like mussels. And mussels are disgusting. 
You ever had one? They're so gross. Like, even when you stab it with the fork, it feels wrong. Like, you're like, I want to pray this kid to scream. You're like, ah, like, no. Like, even, I can feel it in my face. Oh, so gross. You're like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't. Oh, but no one was watching me. Ah. Oh, it's horrible. Horrible. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, though. You got to eat those nasty muscles. So here's a thought I had for you this morning. I was like, look, if you're going to have to do it anyway, right? If you're going to have to do it anyway, you might as well become an unstoppable diaper changer. Amen? You might as well become an unstoppable diaper changer if you're going to have to change those nasty diapers anyway. I got all this out of Ezra 7, believe it or not. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Seraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Achitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marayot, son of Zeraiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Pinchas, son of Elazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And four months later, on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia. And with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of God you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt, without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of, God, for the, house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or the other servants of this house of God. We live in tax-free, baby. We live in tax-free. 
Uh, where am I? I was so excited about that. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, this is important, it comes up later, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Now Ezra is speaking again here in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Ezra chapter 7. What a fun chapter. When I uh, wrote this sermon, I said to uh, my wife, I don't know if I've written anything as encouraging as this in the last 25 years. And that's a tall order because uh, most of my sermons tend to be pretty encouraging. But this one is just straight up wonderful as long as I don't uh, screw it up. You will find here in Ezra chapter 7 this morning 25 snapshots of what an unstoppable life looks like. Now, I thought about it this morning as I was reviewing it, that I should have brought you like a little handout with like the 25-point checklist. So we're going to create a PDF, put it on the website. When you go to listen to the sermon again, you can download the PDF. It's printable, and you can like put it on your fridge with the 25-point checklist for an unstoppable life. It's just that good. So here's uh, 25 snapshots of what an unstoppable life looks like out of Ezra chapter 7. First thing an unstoppable life looks like is it looks like a next step. Okay, an unstoppable life looks like a next step. We see this in verse 1. Now, after this, what is this referring to? After Ezra 6. What happened in Ezra 6? In Ezra 6, we talked about this last week, the tide turned. So Ezra 7 is referencing Ezra 6. Now, after this, for us, as we lyrically interpret the book of Ezra, we say, now, after this, there's always going to be a next step after the tide begins to turn in your life. Here's the point for us this morning. This too shall pass. Okay, this too shall pass. There's always going to be a next step. You may find this very hard to believe, especially if you find yourself in the midst of a very difficult moment. But take hope from Ezra 7 this morning, verse 1. There will be a next step. As soon as you see it, take it. Take the next step. And uh, make sure that you take a real step Because an unstoppable life, point number two, looks connected to the real world. This often means, by the way, that it's not going to be in a hurry. You'll see why here in just a second. Verse one, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. We are working here from a real historical text. Artaxerxes, king of Persia, really existed. He is referenced in extra-biblical literature. So this is not the only ancient text in which we read about the reigns of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, okay? This really happened. This is not a fairy tale. We are dealing here in a real story that happened in the real world. The point for you lyrically is this. Live your unstoppable life in the real world. I thought that I might invite you to consider how much of your time you spend in the world of ideas and imagination. And this comes from a creative person who loves the world of ideas and imagination. I wanted to invite you to consider how much of your time you spend working in the virtual world, in the digital world, in the world of social media. I'm just astonished how so much of our world is um, fixated on how big your 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 following is. I can't even say it. How many followers do you have? And it always occurs to me to say, they're not following you. Right? They're not your followers. It's a, it's a bad term, but it was chosen for a reason. But how much time do especially the 
children of my children's generation spend obsessing about their online life. And many of us, this is true for us as well, or we're fixated on the world of the imagination, or we're fixated on the future world, on things that we hope might happen one day, and we spend so much time in other places in our minds that we forget to live well in the here and now. Take a real step in the real world. Make sure you're preoccupied with real things and be patient, okay? Because this is not going to happen fast, okay? Developing an unstoppable life is going to take some time. Why? Because Artaxerxes, king of Persia, was preceded by Darius, king of Persia, was preceded by Cyrus, king of Persia, in whose reign this decree was first made that God's people could return to their homelands. Can I just point it out again? Three generations. Three dynasties. The dynasty of Cyrus, the dynasty of Darius, the dynasty of Artaxerxes. So, taking this lyrically, don't be surprised if unstoppableness takes at least three generations to show up in your life. Could I get an amen in this house? Have you experienced this? It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen right away. I mean, maybe it does. Once in a while, things turn around quickly, but most of the time, change comes slow. So while you're waiting, I want you to keep in mind that an unstoppable life, point number three, knows where it came from. This is why we read a genealogy. This one is found in verse 1, starting at part B through verse 5. And I'll do it in Hebrew, because I grew up in Israel, and if you're going to read an Israeli genealogy, you might as well read it in Hebrew. Um, Ezra, ben Seraya, ben Azariah, ben Chilkiah, ben Shalom, ben Sadok, ben Achitub, ben Amariah, ben Azariah, ben Merayot, ben, ben Zerachaya, ben Uzi, ben Buki, ben Avishua, ben Pinchas, ben Elazar, ben Aaron, HaKohen, son of Aaron, the high priest. Um, why do I always read the genealogies? Because your lineage matters. Okay, it would have mattered that Ezra was descended from Aaron, the very first high priest. We forget, as uh, Christians living in 2019 in Canada, how important lineages were, and especially how important the lineage of the high priest was. Okay, in a Judah, to which they were returning, without a king, the high priest would have been the number one personage in the entire nation. This is the most powerful person. This is the most influential person. I've mentioned this a couple times in church, but there's always somebody new in church. We forget how just grossly powerful the high priestly family was compared to the rank and file of Jewish society. Most biblical scholars assess the average equivalent yearly income of the average Jewish citizen during the time when tithing was first kind of instituted and tracked, which was during the age of Moses in the wilderness. During this time, the average Jewish man earned the equivalent of $20,000 a year. Okay, $20,000 a year. Now, here's what gets really interesting. When you take the tithe of the average Jewish person, and by the time you give that tithe to the Levites, and by the time the Levites give their tithe to the priests, the income of the priests in Judaism, particularly of the high priest, remembering that $20,000 is what the average Jew earned, the high priest earned $20 million. I'm working in the wrong era. Let's just point it out. Anyway, I could say some things, but I'm not going to. 20 million. Okay, the high priestly family had unspeakable power and influence. So when Ezra is tracing his lineage to that family line, he's making a big statement because lineage matters. Now, here's why this matters for us as Christians. In Jesus, your lineage is Jesus' lineage. 
He's your big brother. In Christ, you have been adopted into the family of the king. You have been adopted into the family of the great high priest. I've said it before, I'll say it again. You're old money now. Okay, not like the Kardashians' old money. Let's not act like those kind of heirs and heiresses. But let's start acting like we have the greatest lineage of all time. Why is this good news for you? Despite how checkered your background might be, you are invited in Jesus to live like you're part of the great high priest's family now. If you get that one point, that'll turn you into an unstoppable force. Every time you face an obstacle, you'll remember, I'm part of the family of the great high priest. Let's get it. Right? Every time you face a challenge, you'll be like, the great high priest himself is my big brother. I learned from him. Let's go. How many of you know that like, we are the problem most of the time? Right? We don't get up and take the next step. We don't push harder to attain the breakthrough. Why? Because we're discouraged. We're broken. Life is hard. I get it. But it's my hope this morning that by reminding you that you are part of the family of God now, I'm hoping that uh, might give you some of that power you need to get up and get going. Knowing that you're part of Jesus' lineage will give you all the energy and all the drive you need to be really great at something which you're going to need to do if you want to have an unstoppable life because an unstoppable life, point number four, is good at something because it has learned to focus. Verse six, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Let me just say, Ezra was skilled with the word of the Lord because he had worked at it, okay? He had favor on his life because he spent time studying what God said. He worked at it, and he studied something that mattered. I wanted to ask you this morning if you have spent enough time studying so that you know what God is about. You can't ride my knowledge of God. Right? You can't. I can use my knowledge of what God is about to hopefully preach in a way that is life-giving for you, but I'm only preaching for half an hour, one day a week. The rest of your life, you're on your own. And so let me invite you to begin studying what God is about in such a way that you can own it for yourself. You're like, I'm already doing it, preacher. Good. Keep at it. If you're like, I don't know, I've never done that. I've wasted my life. No, you haven't. Start today. Start today restart today. If you restart today, seven years from now, you'll have seven years of history to bring to that moment seven years from now where you'll need to learn, lean upon the wisdom you've gathered through doing this for the last seven years. If you don't start today, you'll be one day short. Okay, do the work. Know what God is about. Why? Point number five, because when it comes to building an unstoppable life, I love this point. Skill is good, but favor is better. Right? All the charismatics say, oh, right? Skill is good, but favor is better. Verse 6, for the hand of the Lord was upon him. All right? Quote John Bellion to yourself. I'm a mix of hard work and Jesus' anointing. Right? That's what you should be. A mix of hard work and Jesus' anointing. There is a class of Christian who fixates on hard, who fixates on hard work. Okay? They tend to be not much fun to be around. Tend to be, anyway, let's not say too much there. But you'll know people like this, who they're all about working hard. And it's good to work hard. But if you just work hard and forget about the anointing of God, you're missing out on half the equation. There's also a class of Christian who love the anointing but hate to work. (laughs) 
I spent a lot of time with these people in the 90s, right? They're all like, whoo, the spirit is good. Yeah, but the flesh is weak, right? Do the work. Mixture of hard work and Jesus anointing. While we're on the topic of hard work, you're also going to need some hard work plus some homies. That's uh, point number six. And please don't be offended by me using the term. I'm a product of 90s hip-hop, right? I am a product of the first generation where hip-hop made its way into the lives of mainstream North Americans, and I am the result. So when I say homies, I don't mean it in any kind of derogatory way. I mean it as friends, except that's what I say. When I say friends, I say my homies, right? You need hard work, and also it's more lyrical, isn't it? You need some hard work and some homies. We get this out of uh, verse 7. I'm a rapper at heart. I'm not going to freestyle. Don't ask me twice. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests, and the Levites, the singers, and gatekeepers, and the temple servants, and Ezra. Can I just point out that he didn't go it alone? Have you noticed how much God's people travel in packs? Have you noticed? We're a bunch of pack animals, right? We travel to, I love that double entendre. It happened by accident in the first service. I had to bring it back in second. We're pack animals. We carry a burden, Right? But his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Right? His burden, his burden is light. So we're carrying a burden. We're a bunch of pack animals, but it's Jesus', Jesus burden, so it's light. And we travel in packs. Okay? Don't do life alone. You want an unstoppable life? Get you some homies. And uh, point number seven, go for long walks, knowing you're going to make it because God is good. We see this um, imaged in verses 8 and 9. Ezra came up to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was upon him. It took him four months, lyrically interpreted for you and me today. It's going to take a while to make it, but you will, because God is good. That could be the hook of today's sermon in one sentence. Keep going in hope, trusting God. You want an unstoppable life? Keep going in hope, trusting God. And then point eight and nine, um, set your heart on what you're going to do and do it. We see this image beautifully in verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. What's God calling you to do? Set your heart on it, study it, do it, and then teach it. Not all advertising agencies are all evil all the time. Just do it. Thank you, Nike. Okay? There's only one of you. If you don't do what God has uniquely called and gifted you to do, we're all missing out. So please do it. Please do what God has called you to do. Set your heart, study it, do it, teach it, just do it. And like in verse 13, point number 10, invite everybody to join you on your journey home. I'm not very comfortable with that, inviting everybody to join me on my journey home. You should be comfortable inviting everybody. Why? Because when you invite everybody, you are echoing your Jesus. How could I say such a thing? I've, I've read about Jesus once or twice, and he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. I love this. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me just say, last time and every time I check the meaning of the word all, it means 
all. How many of you know that the more inclusive an invitation is, the more unstoppable it is? Do you know this? What's more compelling? We're going to pick and choose a few of you based on criteria that we've agreed upon. We're going to select you. And once you receive your invitation, when you're good and ready, you can come with us. Or, everybody's invited. Everybody's invited. You t- which is better? A or B? B is better. It's nicer. It's friendlier. It's kinder. It's more fruit of the Spirit-ish. Last time I checked, come unto me all you who are weary. <laughs> all right. And uh, look, uh, while you're at it with this wholehearted thing, point 11, freely give yourself to building the house of God. Wholeheartedly invite everybody to come home and then spend your life wholeheartedly building the house of God. This is what they've been doing in Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. What are they doing? They are building the house of God. Let me tell you two things about the house of God. One, you're it. Okay? In the New Testament reality, God says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So you are the house of God. Second thing I want to say about this. This church is an assembly of people who are the house of God. Therefore, this church is a very big house of God. Historically speaking, this church is an ecclesia. It is a gathering of God's people. It echoes every synagogue that ever was. It echoes the temple itself. It echoes the tabernacle that the Jews had in the wilderness. Okay? It echoes every symbol and image we see in Scripture of God dwelling with His people. In some ways, you could say, this church is the burning bush that God inhabited to speak to His servant Moses. You could say this church is the Garden of Eden that God indwells with his friends Adam and Eve. In some ways you could say this church is an echo of the new Jerusalem, although our streets are not yet paved with gold. And God help us, we would never do that because that would not play very well in our culture. But in every way that matters, this church is an echo of the house of God. So, if you are not giving and serving, and I'm talking real money, Real time, real blood, sweat, and tears here. Okay, because that's what the text is talking about. So I'm not saying this because, like, we have a budget deficit and Todd needs to preach on tithing. You know me by now. I never do that. When I come to money in the text, I'll talk about money in the text. There's money in the text today. Okay, the people of God are giving freely for the building of the house of God. If you are not giving, not serving, here's two things you're doing. One, you're shortchanging your own personal development because you are the house of God. So you're a stingy house if you don't give. Remember uh, Joseph's dreams? We'll preach on this in January. Which cow was better? The, like, the starving skinny one or the big fat one? Somebody help me out. We like the fat cows. Right? So you're shortchanging yourself. And if you are not giving and serving, you're hurting this house. My dad's famous for saying, I never saw a church that suffered from too much money. <laughs> so you're like, Todd, this is a, mm, this is a, this is a ooh, I, don't, I don't know. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it. <laughs> but whoever loses their life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Mic drop. 
right? (laughs) An unstoppable life is a life that gives itself away. In real dollars and cents, in real minutes and hours, in real blood, sweat, and tears for Jesus and his mission. And points 12, 13, 14, 15. That same unstoppable life lives free. It lives bold under the mighty hand of God, like we see in verse 18. It rises to the challenge when it's its turn to rise in verse 20. Do you notice that hidden in verse 20? When it's up to you. Not everything is always up to you all the time. Don't sweat it. Stop micromanaging everything. Okay? You don't have to do everything all the time. But once in a while, you will come to something that is yours to do. When you come to something that is yours to do, do it with everything in you. And do it diligently, like we see in verse 21. And do whatever God says, like we see in verse 23. Because, point number 16, an unstoppable life knows that obedience is better than sacrifice. Echoing 1 Samuel 15, Jeremiah 7, 7, and Ephesians 6. And also echoing verse 23 here in Ezra 7. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full. Ezra's preaching obedience. Okay? The book of Ezra is preaching obedience quoting the words of Artaxerxes, a pagan king, who's speaking to you from across the centuries to remind you that obedience is better than sacrifice. Let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Okay, point number 17, let me talk to you for a minute about the wrath of God. Okay, some Christians love talking about the wrath of God. They're fixated on it. If you ever meet a Christian who's fixated on the wrath of God, the best way to deal with their unfortunate fixation is to invite them to fixate instead upon the cross of Christ, where God the Father poured out his wrath at sin once and for all. Okay, this is what's happening at the cross. God the Son made flesh, Jesus Christ the righteous, the one who never sinned once and perfectly fulfilled his Father's will all the days of his life, is having the wrath of God at sin laid upon him. And God his Father punishes him, God the Son, in your place for your sins. And so if this story is true, God the Father isn't angry anymore because he poured out all the wrath he had on the Son once and for all at the cross. And guess what? After he poured out his wrath on God the Son and killed him, You know what he did? He started smiling. Why? Because on that very first Easter Sunday morning, God the Son got back up. And I bet you that God the Father was pretty happy about that. Which is why he's smiling all the time. So let's make sure all of our cartoons of God the Father now have him with a big old goofy grin on his face. Because he's happy. He's not mad anymore. The wrath of God has been spent upon Calvary's tree. Somebody write me a hymn. Come on now. Somebody write me a hymn. He spent his wrath on Calvary's tree when he paid the price for you and me. I just made that up in the moment. We could do it. Let's write a hymn. Right? He spent his... God's not mad anymore. Now, let me tell you another thing about God. He's still God. And God the Son will return one day to make all things right and to settle accounts because we read that he will come back to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end. So don't get it twisted. He's not angry anymore, but he's still God. And because he's still God and he's coming back to settle accounts, my suggestion as a Bible-preaching pastor who loves you is that you don't mess with him. That's good theology. That's good theology. You're welcome, right? You're w- good job, Todd. Good job. Yeah! He's not mad anymore. 
An unstoppable life recognizes that. So, point 18 and 19, it lives wise, like we see in verses 25a, knowing that one day it will rule and reign with Christ, like we see in 25b. Um, you know, anytime you say rule and reign with Christ, you have to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Friends, God and God alone is faithful. He remains faithful because he's God and we're not. And worship team, I invite you to this stage to lift high the praises of our faithful God in just a moment because I'm almost done. Look, friends, an unstoppable life never forgets, verse 20, that only God is blessed. Point 20, that only God is blessed. This is echoing verse 27 when Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord. Only God is blessed, and we can only relate to the Father because of the Son. But like Hebrews 4.16, we come boldly before the throne of grace because, point 21, once in a while, God does beautiful things, like setting redemption in the heart of the King. Did you notice that Ezra said that God set redemption in Artaxerxes' heart? And I'm sorry, I'm too much of a Bible preacher to not say that every time I read that God set redemption in the heart of a king, I think about the fact that God is the king and he set redemption in his own heart because good theology will teach you that you have been saved from all eternity in the heart of God the Father, which means he set love for you in his own heart by himself. And if God is so good that he will set redemption not only in the heart of Artaxerxes, but God help me, in his own heart, then I can do nothing else but give him praise. He's that good. He sets redemption in the heart of the king, which is why, point 22, mercy has temporal effects. Somebody shout! Mercy has temporal effects. Do you see that the mercy God set in the heart of the king Artaxerxes had temporal actual effects in the lives of Ezra and his homies? Okay, the same is true for you and me. The mercy that God has set in his own heart is having temporal effects in our lives. How do we know? Because Ezra 7, 28 echoes to us down through the centuries. And who extended to me his steadfast love, which is Hebrew for mercy, before the king and his counselors. Notice that God's mercy is not in a vacuum here. It's not isolated here. It is set upon Ezra and its effects are seen in the favor that Artaxerxes and his counselors show him friends mercy makes a difference so like unstoppable ezra points 23 24 25 take courage because the hand of god is upon you gather your homies and go do what you gotta do which in this case means climbing your way home verse 28 and don't let nothing stop you